to his brothers from the dead. He says, but no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Surely if someone rises from the dead and proclaims, you know, I rose from the dead. They said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. They have to hear the truth. They have to know the truth of Scripture or they will not repent. A mere miracle, mere raising someone from the dead, being raised from the dead, will not do it. There has to be the truth presented if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets. Luke 24, 47. The repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That was their job. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. So repentance is a gift from God, and we pray that people will respond. However, I want you to notice very carefully that in the text both both John the Baptist, Jesus himself, Paul when he comes, each the one who preaches. You do, not, you do not preach to people, pray that the Spirit will give you the ability to repent. That isn't what Jesus said. He came proclaiming what? Repent. Authoritatively, in it, commandingly, he called upon them to repent. Understanding that it was the Spirit's work, but doing no less than appealing to the will of those who needed to repent. So let us not undo in our understanding that repentance is a gift from God, which Scripture is clear on, that salvation, Ephesians 2 says, is a gift from God. The whole package, faith, salvation itself, it's a gift granted from God, but it must be appealed to through the will. And we do not appeal to people, pray that you might repent. Now, they might do that, and when they come and talk to you, you might say, they say, I'm wrestling to do this, well, pray. But that isn't how we proclaim the gospel. Repent is what we say. It's a command that we give, knowing that God will grant the grace. So please don't undo the work and the preaching of Jesus and John and the apostles by somehow softening or somehow appealing to some kind of sovereign work of God that they have no understanding of. It is a sovereign work of God, but you don't appeal behind that. You command them, as it were, to repent. God does His work. God works in their will so that they might do it. Because it's very confusing when you try to do that to be, well, they say, well, I can't repent. Somehow you have, to, you have to pray to repent. That's what the Scripture commands you to do. And that's what we command them to do. So repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is a change of heart and mind. This repentance involves then a before where we laughed over our sin. Isn't that what unbelievers do? They laugh. That is, they consider their sin to be less than the grievous evil that it actually is. What does James say? Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. The world rejoices in its sinfulness. Oh, not in, the, not in the, the effects of sin. The world hates that. I mean, when sin comes to wait, when sin comes to bear in the lives of people, they grieve and they cry and they wail and they call out for help. But while they're sinning and in, in the nature of their sin, there's a joy found in it. 
Repentance changes that. All of a sudden we realize that it is not a joyful thing. It's a grievous thing. It's an evil thing. And we no longer enjoy it in the same way that we did when we were unbelievers. It's impossible. That's what repentance does. We no longer relish our sin. We hate it. Now, not as fully and as deeply as we need to as we grow in that, but there's a fundamental change of mind about the nature of sin itself. We begin to hate it instead of finding our joy in it. It's a change then, and, and by saying a change of heart and mind, I'm just making sure that you don't misunderstand. I could just say change of heart, because change of heart involves the intellect, it involves the will, and it involves the affections. But sometimes people, they, they think I'm just appealing to the affections. I'm not appealing to the affections when I say it's a change of heart. I'm appealing to the entire inner man, but I'll say heart and mind so that you understand it's an intellectual appeal as well. That is, it's an appeal to the intellect, which God must change. You see, you cannot appeal around the intellect. There's no such thing. Unless a man understands who he is intellectually, understanding that he's a sinner before holy God, he will not repent. He must change his mind about his condition. And of course, that's impossible. Unless the Spirit of God is doing the work. His whole inner man has changed. His mind, his will, he no longer wants to sin in the same way. He wants to turn from sin. And he no longer delights in sin. His affections are changed. He delights instead in God and what God has done. It's a change of heart and mind. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, really kind of the Old Testament reflection. There's many verses in the Old Testament which give us a reflection of what repentance really is. It's not the same word in the Old Testament as in it's a Hebrew word, not a Greek one, but the concept is the same. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's really the definition of repentance, that he turn. In that turning, he will then live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? That's repentance. And no one turns back from their wicked ways unless they've turned back in their heart, their mind, their will, and their emotions from what they understood about sin before. They were pursuing it because it appealed to them. They were pursuing it because it was good to them. They were pursuing it because they delighted in it. When someone turns from those sinful actions, it is because their heart has changed. And they no longer delight in sin the way they did. They no longer see it the way they did before. They're no longer enslaved to it and captivated to it and bound by it. They've been released. And so they turn. And their actions then change as well. Acts 3.19, therefore repent and return. What does it indicate? That there has been a change. There's been a turning. You cannot return unless you have turned. Repent and return. So you, can, you, you turn away from sin and then continue back in the direction, as we will see, of Christ. Revelation 2.5, just kind of giving this idea of repentance as a change of heart and mind. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. You see it. Repent. Go back to. Stop doing these deeds. Do these deeds. That's repentance. A turning away, a change of heart and mind that results in a change of life. He says, repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. There must be a turning. D.A. Carson says, what is meant by, by this word is not a merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance. That is, I'll feel bad about it, I'll make up for it. Well, that's where the entire world is. That's where the man who was caring for his wife was. He was making up for his sinful acts. He was meriting salvation in the eyes of God through Christ. Again, he was meriting, excuse me, along with, or added to Christ, not through Christ. D.A. Carson, not merely an intellectual change of mind or mere grief or doing penance, 
penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action, including overtones of grief. That is, how could you not grieve when the heart has been changed to recognize that what you are doing violates the character and nature of a holy God? How could you do less than grieve? And it may not look like buckets of tears cried at an altar. In fact, it rarely looks like that. Sometimes it does. But what it will look like is a heart understanding of the grief that, has, that, that is involved with dishonoring and displeasing a holy God. It results in the fruits of in keep fruits that are in keeping with repentance. So repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is a change of heart and mind. Repentance is a call to conversion then. The idea of repentance is that our, our heart has been converted, that it has been changed not only the negative side of understanding our sin, but as we will see, the pursuit of Christ, a heart that calls out to God as Father through the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, through His substitutionary death, through His propitiatory sacrifice that is taking the wrath of God for us. It calls out to God. That's what happens in repentance when the soul is converted. Matthew 18.3, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you rely upon me, throw yourself upon me alone, recognizing your neediness. That's the idea of being like children. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's conversion. Not a mental change. Not simply even attacking on your life. Well, for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, or sometimes people are, for a couple of years, they will tack onto their life behavioral change. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about behavioral modification or merely intellectual modification. We're talking about conversion. That's how repentance happens. The heart is actually changed. The Spirit of God has transformed it. And so repentance is possible. And repentance always happens. It can do no less. A changed heart can do no less than repent. Repentance is a call to conversion. That is the new birth, to be born again. That's what it means to repent. Next, repentance comes from hearing the message. This cannot happen. This will never happen. Not one time ever anywhere will it happen apart from the hearing of the message. Well, why can't it happen through miracles? Why can't someone just do a miracle and then poof, people repent? Somehow they change. Why can't it be simply some kind of emotional appeal that lacks the truth of the gospel presented and people will just know in their hearts? Why, why can't God just work somewhere in, you know, in, in the depths of India or in the jungles? Why won't he just step into their heart apart from anyone sharing the gospel with them? Why won't he just change them? All of those are preached today that God will do that. Do a miracle, he will just change them. He will change them without anyone going at all because he desires for them to be saved. He will have a vision for them to someone where, where no man went and presented the truth of the word of God and they will get saved through that. All of those things are preached, but that is not what the Bible says. Anywhere. Luke 16, 30. This is the rich man in suffering in hell. Hades, really, the precursor to the lake of fire. He appeals that someone would go to his brothers from the dead. He says, but no father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Surely if someone rises from the dead and proclaims, you know, I rose from the dead. They said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. They have to hear the truth. They have to know the truth of Scripture or they will not repent. A mere miracle, mere raising someone from the dead, being raised from the dead, Will not do it. There has to be the truth presented if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets. Luke 24, 47. 
that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That was their job. That's what the apostles were given to do. They had to go proclaim, not pray that God would start a revival somewhere where they didn't go. The message has to go. And that's why we have an urgency towards missions, an urgency to preach because people won't repent if the word is not given. They will not understand the nature of their sin because the only thing that creation and conscience do for them, Romans 1 and 2, the only thing that that does for them is condemn them to eternal hell so that no one will stand before God saying, I didn't know. I didn't know that I was under your command. I didn't know that you were the great God or that there was a great God. I didn't know that I was sinful. See, men know that already. What they don't know is how to repent. What they don't know is the truth of repentance for the forgiveness of sins granted only through the work of Christ. Acts 20, 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And go ahead and turn to Romans 10. You, you know I'm going there. Go ahead and turn there so you can see it and be reminded again. Is any of this sounding familiar to you? Yes, like, what, four months ago, five months ago? I don't know. It's pretty much pretty similar. That's okay. We'll all hear it again. Romans chapter 10. We must hear this so we do not forget. Romans 10, verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? He's saying, look, all of Israel didn't believe. What's the problem? Well, the problem isn't what was done. That is the proclaiming of the message because it was almost like that was being called into question. Maybe proclaiming the message isn't enough. Maybe just telling them the truth is not enough. Absolutely not. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. The voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Okay, now it's back up into verse 13. And so that was kind of the result that happened when the message was proclaimed. Not everyone believes. That's not our issue. The problem is not that everyone won't respond to it and therefore it's ineffective no, it's verse 13, says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is good news of good things. And it must be proclaimed. Repentance comes from hearing the message. It is the word of God through the power of the spirit of God that brings life. James 1.18. And the exercise of his will, that is God's, he, God, brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Does it need to be any clearer than that? He brought us forth by what? The word of truth. That is, he gave us life. 1 Peter 1.23, for you have been born again, converted, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and, and enduring word of God. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. And then the key phrase that you need to quote when you're quoting the rest of that verse is this, and this is the word which was preached to you. Not an existential word in the moment. Not a word brought by a vision. This is the word preached to you. Men preach. And men come proclaiming the message and it must be preached. And when it is preached, then God raises the dead heart to life and there is repentance. Next, repentance brings a radical change. Repentance is not a minor renovation. It is a total and complete transformation. An understanding of our sinful state and combined with the preaching and teaching of the truth of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross, his sinless life, 
his substitutionary death, his burial, his triumph over sin and death, and his resurrection, those things proclaimed along with an understanding or, or the proclamation of the nature of what we call our depravity, that is that we are tainted with sin in every part, not as evil as we could be, but evil everywhere. All men could have some more capacity to do another evil deed, but they cannot be any more tainted with evil than they are. All men are equally tainted as they come into this world. So repentance brings a radical change from that. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Go ahead and turn there. We appeal to this verse often when it comes to a repentance of believers, that believers are to repent from the sins that they commit. And it's a great verse to do that with. But fundamentally, this describes the nature of repentance for an unbeliever. And I want you to notice how radical this is, how different this is from the, from the verbal proclamation of repentance. Like one time I heard when I came here, the first uh, youth rally that I went to, I didn't take my youth to it. I was invited to go. I, played, I did games at it because that was safe. I could leave the games and I did. The message proclaimed there was this. I came to Christ and I got worse. I came to Christ and my life was a mess, more so than it was before. As an unbeliever, I was bad. I came to Christ and I got worse just so he could show me how great he is. I'm sorry, that's wrong. And my only prayer during that time was that the Lord would cover the ears of those, of those kids that were listening to that foolishness because repentance does what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says it does. And that is this. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. That is, it's not gone back on. It isn't undone. Leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Well, what does it look like then? For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent of the matter. Now certainly speaking of their individual sinfulness, but I believe certainly speaking to them both as some as believers repenting from individual sins, some as unbelievers who had never come to Christ. The quality of life looks the same. Now, I understand the fruitfulness of someone who's already a believer, obviously, should be increasing. It should be greater than someone who just comes to Christ. But the quality of life looks like 2 Corinthians 7.11. For the brand new believer or for the older believer recovering from sinful acts. The entire life of the believer is 2 Corinthians 7.11. Earnestness, godly sorrow vindication of ourselves. We hate what we were before. We understand we were in slavery to sin and we long to be done with that completely. We long for our lives to show how far we want to be separated from sin. Every ounce of our being cries out to be holy. That's what a believer does. Now I know sin taints that. I understand that we wrestle at at varying degrees as we wrestle with our flesh, but in our redeemed nature, that is what it cries for. And if that is not what your life cries for, you don't have a redeemed nature. That's the problem. The redeemed nature cries out for this kind of earnestness, this kind of vindication, this kind of demonstration that you're no longer that person enslaved to sin that you were before, whether you were five years old when you came to Christ or 50. You were equally enslaved to sin. You just hadn't lived as long in it. You hadn't committed as many sinful acts. There are no good three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, just as there are no good 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, or 50-year-olds. No one is good. No, not one, says the Bible, Romans chapter 3. We're all equally condemned. And when we change, when we have been renewed through repentance and faith, 
It looks like this, godly sorrow, a true grief and sadness over the evils of sin and its consequences. Earnestness, excited fervor to accomplish the task of holiness. Vindication, that is the proof of the fact that we have been redeemed. We've been set free from sin and we long to prove that. Whether it's an individual sin that we are recovering from or a life of sinfulness that we were dominated by, we long to show that we're not that way anymore. Is that what you long for? Your life is spent demonstrating that you are no longer a slave to sin. Believers do that. Believers who have truly repented do that. And at one degree or another, they do it all throughout their lives. An indignation, an emotional disturbance, horror or distress over what sin we committed. We're horrified by it. It distresses us to the extreme that we would be caught in that sin as believers or that as unbelievers, we were in that. We hate that. We can't believe that we were dishonoring God even when we were slaves to sin. Fear, a delightful, dreadful, consuming, reverential awe of God, an understanding of His holiness and how could we have violated His character and our love for Him is so great that we long for to never disappoint Him the way that we did before. A zeal. Excessive fervor to accomplish the end of holiness, of being removed from sin, because that's why we were saved. Not avenging of wrong. We want to go back and make sure that we have done all that we could to be disassociated from that sin. How about Zacchaeus? Some kind of works righteousness when he goes back and says, look, I'll repay fourfold. No, this verse, this concept, 7-11, I want to be vindicated from my sin. I want them to see so far from being the stealing, thieving tax collector that I was, that I'll give them back everything fourfold because God is so good and because I long to be I long for it to be seen that I'm no longer that enslaved to sin tax collector that I was that's Zacchaeus that's who we are called to be when we repent a demonstration of total innocence well you could just call that being above reproach no man is totally innocent and the very require yet the very requirement for leadership within the church is that they are above reproach a constant pursuit of the demonstration of innocence from sin, whether it be repentance from sin when there is, or a constant stepping away from sin, which there must be in order to qualify for leadership, but which also is the proper reflection of the heart of all believers at one level or another. That's repentance. That's what Jesus is calling for when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is necessary. It's necessary. Why? Because it's a necessary part of belief. One cannot believe in Christ without repenting of sin. There's no ability to take hold of Christ for forgiveness of sin if you do not agree with God about the nature of and penalty for sin. In Mark 1.15, when it is recorded what Jesus said, he came saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are the flip sides of the same coin. You cannot turn and believe in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf if you haven't recognized your sinfulness and turned. You cannot hold on to Christ if you're holding your sin. And really, if you're holding your own acts of righteousness, that's why you can't turn to Christ. That's why the man caring for his stricken wife for 25 years was unsaved because he would not let go of his own righteousness and hold on to Christ, even though what he would do would have looked very much the same. And yet apart from Christ, it was a condemning act, not a saving one, even in caring for his dying wife. What's the difference? He would not let go. You cannot hold on to Christ if you don't turn from your own self-righteousness. That's the nature of justification by faith, and it needs to be understood more clearly. 
And that is the grievous error of the Catholic Church and any church that tries to combine Christ with your own righteousness. You cannot be saved. Everyone must repent. And repentance is not simply recognizing that you are a sinner, but recognizing that no deed of yours is meritorious and that you will be condemned to eternal hell for both the acts of commission and omission for even your acts of righteousness apart from Christ. Now, Jesus made this very, very clear. You might say, Chris, you are way overstating that case. I am not. Jesus made this so clear. Luke 5.32. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Who are the righteous? Some group of people that we haven't mentioned that was already righteous and going to heaven? No, the Pharisees who thought they were righteous, who were holding on like the man I met at the rest home, like so many others are, to their own good works and saying, this is sufficient. We've already accomplished it. And that would be the best of humanity, not the worst. Those who would seemingly, the Pharisees were were looked upon as, as, as spiritual fathers, as spiritual paragons. The best of the world apart from Christ is nothing more than condemned to eternal hell. They don't repent. I don't call righteous people to repentance because they can't repent until they recognize their sinfulness. They will not. Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's no rejoicing over 99 righteous people because they're going to hell. It is the one that turns That is the one where there is great rejoicing. Every person is in need of repentance. It is because repentance is a necessary part of believing in Jesus. And yes, we need to preach strongly, again, the work of Christ on the cross. But but again, you will notice that that right now, right here, is not my primary pursuit because it is the nature of the text again. Yes, there must be repent and believe in the gospel. Believe who Jesus is. But as I stated before when we talked about John, there is in our day and age a too quick of a turning to this is what Jesus has done apart from this is who you are and this is why you need what Jesus has done. And so people add Jesus to their pantheon. We'll stick him up there with our other gods because that seems like a pretty good way to be safe from eternal hell, to be safe from the, the, the bad stuff in my life. He'll take care of all of that. It isn't that the work of Christ on the cross isn't absolutely essential to salvation. But you can't take hold of it unless you repent. And really, repentance is part and parcel to that. If you turn from sin, the heart the only heart that will turn from sin is the heart that will always turn to Christ. Did you hear that? The only heart that will actually turn from sin will and can cling only to Christ. And that's part and parcel to what it is. Every person, or repentance is, necess- is a necessary part of belief, and every person is in need of repentance. There are no degrees of depravity. None. There are degrees degrees of sinful acts. There are degrees of people's actual outliving of their sinfulness. But our innate sinfulness for every person born into this world is all the same. And oh, we need to be taught this over and over. And oh, we forget it so quickly. And oh, how quickly we get arrogant towards others. We in America, this is a Christian nation. So we're a step above all those other nations. And when bad things happen in the city of New Orleans or they happen somewhere else, we go, ha, they deserve that. That's an evil city. But Maryville, no, not Maryville. This is, this is a sweet place. This is a place where we come to protect our children from those evil people out there. And we, and we, and we protect them from school. And even if we do put them in school, it's, hey, these are good schools here because we're safe here. People are good here. They're not. And they're not any better than anywhere else. Luke 13.1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans. Isn't that interesting? The Galileans. 
Those evil Galileans, they just don't get it. They don't live in Jerusalem. They're impure. They're mingled with Gentiles. How about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices? Almost as though those reporting it to Jesus were like, didn't they deserve that, those Galileans? Did they forget that Jesus' ministry began there? Yes, I think they did. Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? Even this worst of the worst, maybe there's worst out of the worst. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no. Ah, there's the comparison. All the men who live where? In Jerusalem. Ah, there's, there, there's the spiritual guys. Maryville. Not New Orleans, not New York, not some evil city or some evil country like North Korea or Laos or Cambodia. Those are, no. Do you think they were worse than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's the message of Jesus. Repent. The kingdom is coming. The king is here. And you cannot receive the king unless you recognize that you do not live according to his standard. You cannot receive the king unless you recognize that you aren't already in his kingdom. You cannot receive the king unless you recognize that every other kingdom that you suppose yourself to be a part of is equally separated from his kingdom by sinfulness. There's no American kingdom that's a little closer and, and, and you, you know, your special group or kingdom that's a little... No, all kingdoms apart from the kingdom of Christ are equally cast in darkness. And until you recognize that the greatest of your seemingly good acts is nothing but filthy rags in comparison to the righteousness of Christ, then you will not turn to him. You must repent. The king says, and we won't be able to get into it this morning, the king says the kingdom is at hand. I'm here. I'm the king. And you, it's, it's now it's time to accept me. But my, my challenge to you this morning is, is this. Does your life look like 2 Corinthians 7, 11? As one who has claimed to have repentance, which I would imagine that the vast majority of you here do. Is your life characterized by these things? Earnestness. You're serious about this. This consumes you that you would turn away from sin and provide Glory to Christ by continually pursuing and obeying his commands. Earnestness, vindication, a recognition of what you were before. And I never want to be that again. For every sin that you commit now and a recognition of what you were like before. Indignation, a wrath against sin. I hate sin. Not... Proverbs 8, 12 is clear. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate to hate it, not to try to run away from it, not to try to suppress it, not to play with it, to hate it. Indignation over your sin. And by the way, I'm not talking about everyone else's sin. I'm indignant over those who practice homosexuality. I'm indignant over those adulterers out there. I'm indignant over my own sin. And therefore, for the grace of God, go I. In every one of those abominable things that could be done. Earnestness, vindication, indignation, fear, a true fear of the Lord. Is your life characterized by that? Are you a God-fearing man or woman? God is weighty to you. And everything you do, you think about, what does God think? Is God, is God pleased with this? And what did God do to pay for this sinful act that I'm about to commit? I will never do that. The precious blood of Christ would keep me from ever sinning in that way. Fear, longing, a longing to be seen as a child of God who is pursuing holiness. Zeal, again, this is consuming. No passive 
apathetic Christians. No, repentance is never apathetic. Now we wrestle, we struggle with our sin, but at its core, repentance and belief in Christ are zealous and avenging of wrong, stepping away from it, seeking to undo that which we have done that is wrong, not in penance, but in a demonstration of the Spirit of God and His power. And then a demonstration of innocence. I'll never go back there. I'll never be like that again. I'm going to get as far away from that as I possibly could. My bitterness, my anger, my jealousy, my pornography, whatever it might be. Does that characterize your life? If it doesn't, it may be that you know not Christ at all. Because that characterized His. And every other true believer, at some level, this is their heart. Is it you? If it isn't, you need to know Christ. And you need to repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. And if this does characterize your life, then you should rejoice and you should step forward in a continual increase of that zeal that you might look more like, sound more like, and lead more people to the Lord who died that you might be holy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning and I thank you for the privilege of hearing the message to repent. For we would not know that we needed to unless you told us. We would not know the nature of our own hearts unless you chose to reveal it to us through your word. And we are so grateful that you would command us to do this, that we might bring you the glory that you deserve and that we might do so in being saved from eternal destruction. I want to pray for each one here that they would live a life this week of true repentance, that their lives would reflect your greatness and your character to ever-increasing degree. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.